Good morning. Thanks, Scott. Uh, my name is Tony. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Benjamin is going to be preaching from this morning. Uh, it's Hebrews 13:17, and it's on page 949 in the Pew Bibles. I think it'll be on the screen as well. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is God's word. Well, we've been in a series on the local church. And drawing from the words in Matthew chapter 16, we titled the sermon series, I Will Build My Church and gave it the subtitle, God's Anecdote for an Anxious and Apathetic Age, which is to say that the church is not insignificant, which is to say whether we realize it or not, the church is significant. We began preaching about the sweep of salvation, the whole sweep of God's salvation, And all that God does to save sinners and redeem all of creation. We've preached about the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And we've preached generally about the church. The way that we're chosen, treasured, and changed people. Now we're going to do something of a mini-series within the bigger series on the church. We're going to talk about pastors this week deacons next week, and then church members in two weeks, or as we titled them on the poster you can see around the church, pastors as watchmen for our protection, deacons as help for our vulnerability, and church membership as a community for our growth. Our passage this morning, as you heard read, was just one verse, just Hebrews 13, 17. Super rare for us to have just one verse. But in it, the leaders are described as, watch, as men who watch over the souls of those under their care. Thus, your pastor's aim, week in, week out, is to prepare you to live and die well. That's, that's what we do. Your pastor's aim, week in, week out, to help you live and die well. Or to say it another way, as we often say it around here, your pastors exist to help the weak, wounded, and wayward enjoy the living Jesus. So would you join me in prayer as we begin to look at this verse in more detail? Let's pray. Lord, I feel this morning that it's not merely (laughs) me who wants to lead the weak, wounded, and wayward, but who in various ways can feel weak, wounded, and wayward myself. And so come. Show forth the wisdom of your salvation, the the, the joy of knowing you through the preaching of your word in ways we don't expect or can't imagine, but we'll be thankful for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So I've been in Harrisburg as one of your pastors now for, this is the ninth year, and I have a very distinct memory from when I first moved here. I was on my bike riding up over Blue Mountain Parkway. So Blue Mountain is that ridge just north of the city, just towards Lingolstown. And I was riding up that hill, which requires a lot of effort, which is why I like it. And I'm very strange, I know that. and in this particular time, I was on the back side of the hill coming up over towards this side of the city, so to speak, and, and so near Harrisburg Christian School, if you know the area, and I was maybe a tenth of a mile from the top, when less than a tenth of a mile, when I, so near the top, and I get a flat tire. Pull over, flip over my bike, take out the tools from uh, my little saddlebag and begin to change the inner tube. Now, when that goes well, it takes five minutes. When it goes badly, it takes 15. When it goes really badly, I call for a ride home. This was going okay, sort of. And then I saw over the ridge of the hill a white car come. And it looked like it was going slowly. And I just had a sense, it looks like they want to tell me something. And so I'm, I'm there, I'm fixing my tire, and they, the car comes. And the woman leans out the passenger side and says, Did you see that bear? (laughs) It's a true story. I shake my head. She says, really? It's just like right there. It was shaking trees. It's huge. I say, oh. The driver then leans forward and says, yeah, so huge. (laughs) That's what he said, the driver. And I... As he continued to coast away, by the way, he's, he's going down the hill. And then the woman yells as they're like, now I'm like back there. They're like, good luck. <laughs> and I just sit there in my tiny little helmet, hoping Pennsylvania bears don't like to eat spandex. That's what I was thinking. And I never did see the bear myself, but it was disconcerting to me that someone else saw the bear, saw real danger, and did nothing to help. Well, almost nothing, right? They asked if I saw it. They made small talk. But they could have said, do you want us to sit here while you finish? Which I thought was a fairly reasonable (laughs) option for them. Um, Do you want us to give you a ride to the bottom of the hill far away from this bear? That's so huge. Real danger. They had options, but they just chose to keep driving. Now that story, now as I tell it, and not so much as I experienced at the time, but it's funny. (laughs) But we also hear that as like wrong. We sense that even though they had no formal obligation to help, to watch out for me, if you will, they had some sort of moral obligation to watch out for a fellow human being. And we do read in God's scriptures that there are those who have been appointed to have a formal obligation, to say nothing of the moral one, to care for and watch out for others. These people appointed to care for and watch out for others go by various names. Generally, they're called leaders or watchmen, as in this passage, or perhaps pastors or elders or overseers. We at our church tend to put the terms pastor and elder together with a hyphen because we feel like in culture those words tend to mean different things, but in the New Testament, we read them to be the same thing. The elders is those who make decisions and you know, come in, they're a board and the pastors who cared. We, we, we keep those together because we think the New Testament keeps them together. But anyway, another name for these leaders is called shepherds, which really is just another translation, so to speak, of the word pastor. Earlier in the service, as Noah was leading us through the time of confession, 
an assurance of pardon. We heard parts of Ezekiel 34 read. The passage is infamous for the way the shepherds, the watchmen, the leaders of Israel had become so dysfunctional that God was going to put them under judgment. In short, rather than the shepherds caring for the tender sheep under their care, they were eating mutton for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And God promised that he would become their good shepherd. And he did this in the person of Jesus Christ, who calls himself the good shepherd. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, says Jesus in John 10, 10, and 11. I came, he says, that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So in the book of Ezekiel chapter 34, out of the overflow of God's watch care and love and compassion for his people, God promises himself to come and be their good shepherd. But that's not all that God has to say about the matter. The prophet Jeremiah, roughly a contemporary of Ezekiel, so about the same time, they're just geographically removed. Ezekiel's over there in Babylon and Jeremiah's back in Jerusalem, but they're prophesying similar themes and listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 15 you don't need to turn there's just one verse let me read it to you Jeremiah 3 15 I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding notice the phrase is plural not singular as it was in Ezekiel 34 again I will give you shepherds God says after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God's watch care, his loving watch care for his people, leads him to send the one great good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who the apostle Peter calls the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5. But God also promises to give many good shepherds, or under-shepherds as we call them, to watch over his flock. And now, with all this in mind, hopefully you still have Hebrews 13 open. We're just going to look at it carefully here. Hebrews 13, 17, just one verse. Let me read it to us again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That is, if they're groaning, joyless pastors, that would not be helpful. This verse speaks to both leaders and congregations. Typically, when we preach a passage, and it's usually a whole passage, we'll come up with some sort of outline that we feel is helpful to help us understand the, the sense of what's being taught here. And give us handholds, so to speak, on the passage this morning. I just want to take the phrases in this passage and go through them one by one and kind of put them in four chunks together. I know the first word in the passage is obey in almost every single English translation. And then it follows up with submit, obey, and then submit. But, but let's not start there. Let, let me start with the phrase, it's a small one, your leaders... And then coupled with that, to them. So it's obey your leaders and submit to them. So we're going to take the phrase first to look at your leaders and to them. I have a pastor friend who wrote an article, published it a few years ago, 2019, on a major Christian website. 
And the title of the article is, quote, Why I'm a better pastor for you than Keller or Piper. Now, that's Timothy Keller and John Piper, probably two of the most famous conservative evangelical pastors in at least the English-speaking world, with each of them having 40 years, if not 50 years of ministry, probably in nearly 100 books between them, and millions of total sales. And my friend wrote an article published on a major website that says why he's a better pastor for you. <laughs> and I want you to get this. John Piper, when he saw the article shared on social media, he saw that post and he reshared it with this quote. Just so you know, Tim, he calls him Tim, I don't, Dr. Keller to me, but Piper, I guess, can call him Tim. Just so you know, Tim and I think this is absolutely right. Really? The whole point of the article was this. That because my friend was one of the local pastors of his people, a local watchman, he was a better pastor for them than a big famous pastor who would never know the name of a sheep. The author of Hebrews writes, quote, your leaders, end quote, to them. The assumption of the author is that if you're a Christian, you can point to people you know and they can point to you as people they know and you can say, these are my leaders. And they can say, he's one of my sheep. She's one of my sheep. You can have favorite authors and podcasts and leaders and talking heads, but they're not your leaders, not in the sense of Hebrews 13 or in the broader sense of the New Testament. John Piper and Timothy Keller and John MacArthur and Jen Wilkin and whoever you would want to put in there as your favorite pastor, the Bible Project guys, or whoever you want to count, they're not your leaders. You don't know them. And they don't know you, probably. You might. But you don't know all of them. They're not going to show up at the funeral for your spouse, probably. Not to mention that it's in this passage, leaders in the plural, not the singular, which is how it always is in the New Testament, the plurality of leaders, the plurality of watchmen. So I'll ask this question. I know this is pointed. I know this is pointed. But this is in part why we chose this sermon series, because we feel ourselves in a cultural moment where the church, the bride of Christ, is so undervalued. But I want to ask the question, can you be in obedience to God if, as a pattern, you only casually and anonymously attend various churches? According to this verse. The answer is no. You can't. Now, if you're visiting us this morning, this is a good strategy for visitors, right? Uh, make them feel really bad. No, I'm not saying visitors this morning. I'm not saying to anybody who's been here less than a year. I'm not talking to you. I'm glad you're here. It takes a lot of time to figure out who these people are and who these leaders are. That takes time. It takes time to choose the right church. You need to experience the church before you would do it. But when the time is right, Church membership tries to take seriously the formal declaration that identifies both shepherd and sheep. Church membership establishes a community 
that has both accountability and protection. Let's keep going. So then we come to the words obey and submit, which is really, in a sense, to go backwards. We'll start where the passage starts. Obey and submit. The Bible says you should obey your leaders and submit to them, except for when you shouldn't obey your leaders and submit to them. It's very, very clear, right? Obey leaders except for when you shouldn't. Submit to leaders except for when you shouldn't. I'll explain. We probably feel in a cultural moment uniquely hard to preach this. Americans tend to be individualistic and anti-authoritarian, so there's that. And we've all seen a rash of national religious leaders launched high into the sky and explode, throwing shrapnel everywhere. And that's at the national level. And many of you have seen church leaders flame out at the local and personal level. So again, we might feel ourselves in a cultural moment where it's uniquely difficult to preach this. I don't think that's true, though. I've got a quote here from John Owen. Owen was a pastor in the 1600s. He's most famous, if he's famous at all to you, for his book on temptation called The Mortification of Sin. And there's this quote, again, if that book's not famous, maybe the quote would be, where he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The guy wrote like volumes of books that would put on a bookshelf and he's famous for one sentence. Uh, I have it on a coffee mug with a skull on it. The church bought it for me as a Christmas present a few years ago. Uh, That quote, I'm sure John Owen would approve. But in Owen's commentary on Hebrews, on this verse, he writes this. It's kind of wordy. He's writing the 1600s, and he's one of the worst offenders of wordiness, which is why he could fill a shelf. But he writes, those who rule are those who guide, feed, or lead you with authority. It is with respect unto their teaching, preaching, or pastoral feeding that they are commanded to obey them. It is not a blind, implicit obedience and subjection that is here prescribed. If those who suppose themselves to be in offices as guides of others do teach things that belong not unto their office, there is no obedience due to them by virtue of this command. Close quote. In other words, obey your leaders except for when you shouldn't. Don't follow them off a theological cliff. Don't submit to leaders as they lead you into sin. Owen writes that after a thousand years of what was almost exclusively leadership of the church held by the Roman Catholic Church, which in the last few hundred years leading up to the point that Owen wrote that was especially dysfunctional. And that's not to pick on Catholics in any way, shape, or form, but I think most thoughtful people looking at the time of the Reformation would say the Catholic Church was in a bad way. Which is to say, Owen knew something of bad church leaders. So our time is not unique. And even if you go back to the New Testament itself, go back to the New Testament itself, there are plenty of commands to avoid wolves masquerading as faithful pastors. Paul uses those exact words in the book of Acts to warn church leaders. Acts chapter 20. Also compare Galatians chapter 1. And now we have the hashtag MeToo movements and hashtag church to movements but with that in mind our moment in mind listen to these words from Jesus 
himself, speaking of the religious leaders in his day. This comes from Luke chapter 20. Variations of this show up in several of the Gospels. But Jesus says this, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. That's the phrase I want to focus on. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. I'm not sure if devour widows has a sexual meaning or if it's merely a monetary one. But the idea is that leaders using their power to overpower the powerless, that's what's going on in Jesus' day, which is to say evil. So, so, so we come back to our moment. We have to realize we're, we're not unique. In the words of the author of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, we see this tension between obey and not obey, that tension there. Okay, when do we obey and when do we not obey? That tension, which is all over the New Testament itself, we see it actually playing out in Hebrews 13 for us. Let your eyes go up to verse 7. We're told to remember our leaders. Now, those leaders are those, the outcome of their lives. Those leaders there are probably those who have gone on to be with the Lord at the time they were receiving this. And now the other leaders are their present tense ones. But verse 7 says, remember your leaders. Consider their outcome and way of life and just just follow them. Do what they did. The way they led you, you be led. Then, verse 8, Jesus saying yesterday, today, and forever, amen. Then verse 9, quote, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It goes on. So what does it say? Obey leaders except for when you shouldn't. Okay. Let me try and say it as carefully as I can. Because some of you... I know have been hurt by church leaders. It's, it's funny timing, really. I mean, this last week, I, th- I think between formal meetings and informal meetings over the last week, I must have heard from a half dozen people severely hurt by the local church. Not necessarily ours, just the church. So what does this verse say to us? What, what does it say? Okay, here's my attempt to give as careful as I can. At the level of the heart, these verses are saying that when you have leaders watching over you for your good, your heart posture should be as much as possible and as prudent as possible that of trust. You should try to work toward the place where your default posture is wanting to go along with your leaders. I'm trying to say that carefully. Working towards the heart posture. Not necessarily having it. I don't know your context. I don't know your history. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what pastors have been for you in your past. But it's at the level of the heart. I'll say it one more time. At the level of the heart, this verse is saying that when you have leaders watching over you for your good, your heart posture should be, as much as it is possible and prudent, that of trust. I'll put it like this, when I have my articles or books I've worked on edited by gifted editors, I try to have my heart posture inclined to trust the editor. That she's seen something I might not see. That that red ink all over my words are there for my good. And my default 
answer to her suggestions are, yeah, that's probably better. Like, that, that's where I want to start. And we could talk about if it's not better, but like, that's where I want my heart to be when I'm in a good frame of mind. Again, to quote Owen, it is not a blind, implicit obedience and subjection that is here prescribed. When I first began working at my former church, so this is over a dozen years ago, I was younger than I am now, that's what happens. Uh, you get older, and I was a rookie pastor, and, and I wanted to love the sheep that were there at this church, but I had little experience doing that well, even though I tried imperfectly at times. And at our church, there was this guy named Glenn. Glenn had been walking with the Lord at the time longer than I had been alive. And I remember talking with him about baptizing his son. Remember where we were sitting in his office. He's here. I'm right here. Glenn and then his son. Talking with Glenn about faith. Glenn knew the Lord well. Yet he always treated me, even though I was young, with such respect. And, and, and it caused me to realize or reflect upon that there are those who give respect because someone deserves respect, which is the ordinary way of the world. And it's not entirely wrong. It's most of the time appropriate. But then there are those who give respect because the office or the role of a person deserves respect. And then, therefore, it should be given until it should be taken away. What this passage is encouraging is a community of respect for leaders and then from those leaders support back to that congregation. A community of following leaders and those leaders then giving protection back to the people. There's so much more we could say, but I need to keep moving. I've tried to be careful. If you don't feel that was careful, you feel it was oversight, we'd love to talk with you about it. All of our leadership is I think, I'm maybe biased, thoroughly approachable, I would hope. So please do that. Let's go to the next phrase, just two more, and I'll take these much more quickly. Read it to you again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's the part I want to talk about. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The author tells the church to, like he does do this, he tells them to submit to leaders, but leaders are reminded that they submit to God. Leaders will give an account to God for how they lead God's people. No shepherd has ever eaten sheep and will get away with it, either in this life or the life to come. It won't happen. Leaders will give an account to God for how they lead. I'll put it like this. If there was a problem in a church and Jesus was going to address it, when he knocks on the door, he's going to ask, may I speak with the pastor elders, please? First, at least. As I heard one pastor say recently, first and foremost, elders are not men with authority, but men under authority. Consider the phrase there, keep watch over your souls. We don't speak like that much these days. That phrase communicates a serious responsibility. It tells us as we consider, it tells us something about how we should consider which church to belong to. That we should not choose a church just because of this snappy worship team or the best coffee or fun youth programs. We should be choosing our churches when we're thinking rightly about 
whether the leaders are based, I'll say it this way, where their church leadership is, has quality men installed to keep watch over souls. That's first and foremost. We'll come to the last phrase. Notice what it says. To me, it's a surprising one. Just because something is serious matter doesn't mean it can necessarily be joyless. A serious thing can also be a very joyful thing. The last line says, let them do this, that is, watch over your souls with sobriety, knowing they're going to be judged. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's not wrong for you to want joyful pastors as opposed to crabby pastors, I suppose. In fact, this passage is saying you should want pastors to be joyful because it actually helps you. Think about that. An engineer might be able to design a widget without joy and your ability to use that widget won't necessarily be diminished if the engineer is not necessarily joyful. You can have unhappy engineers because happiness isn't necessarily integral to the product they're producing. That's not the best thing in the world. All things being equal, you'd rather have happy engineers. Probably design better bridges, right? But pastors have the calling to know God and walk with God and commend God to others. That's their responsibility. Hey, have you considered Jesus? (laughs) He's wonderful, they're supposed to say. How can we do that if we hate pastoring, hate walking with God, hate knowing Jesus? How can we commend to you eternal joy if we are not in some ways also joyful? You can't. We can't. Consider going to the doctor when you have health concerns. You get back into that little room. You wait out front. You wait in the back room. You wait there. The nurse takes blood pressure, leaves. It's like 8.35 in the morning. Eventually, the doctor staggers into the room, doesn't look like he's slept for days, hasn't shaved, like 50 pounds overweight, sits down in the chair, asks you how they're doing as he like, takes out a cigarette and cracks open a fresh beer. You, are, are you comfortable trusting your deep health concerns to this individual? No, of course not. And you wouldn't want to take spiritual advice about how to have eternal happiness from a man who seems to know nothing of this happiness in this life. Now, ministry, especially Christian leadership within ministry, can be really, really hard. This world's a really broken place. And leaders see more of the brokenness for sure, but still, good pastors realize how wonderful of a job they have. Even when it doesn't feel wonderful in the moment. Pastors get to watch over people so that they become more and more joyful in Jesus. What a wonderful job. In fact, when Paul lists the character requirements for being a pastor, the first thing he says is that a person who desires to be an overseer desires a noble task, 1 Timothy 3.1. Which, if you give me a minute, Just one minute before we close. Let me put in a word here to some of you. Church, cultivate a vision for the nobleness and joyfulness of serving 
church in the role of leadership. The world will give you many visions for what it looks like to have a successful life. Some of those visions will be true visions for what a successful life might look like. Some of those visions will be a flat-out lie, utterly bankrupt. But even among those true visions of what a flourishing, successful life might look like, I want to cast a vision for you right now to begin training so that one day you could become a godly leader in a local church. It may feel like a lot of work, because it is, and it may feel insignificant, because it often looks that way. But over the long haul, it will bear fruit. And it will be joyful because when leaders do their job well, when they show up to serve, show up to lead, lives get changed for the better. Family trees get changed. I see that. One generation proclaiming God's work to another. Dream of that. Pray about that. Long for that. Have a vision. Have a vision that after your life has been poured into for one decade, two decades, four decades, whatever it is, that a crowning, not the only, but a crowning achievement of your life might be the season God gives you to have the privilege of then watching over the souls that were watching over you. As we close, I want to tell you about two of my heroes of pastoral ministry. You'd never guess the first, though you probably guess the second. One of my pastoral heroes, and I'm looking at the clock, we're going to go a couple minutes long. Sorry. <laughs> this is going to happen. But one of my pastoral heroes was not actually a pastor, but he did model for, I think, what it means to work with people for their joy. Uh, for many years, there was the television show, The Biggest Loser. I've brought up The Biggest Loser a couple times before. There was parts of the show that just were fascinating. My family loved it. But, but, but the contestants there, they're on the show and they're there to lose weight. And for them, it's not about looking good in a bathing suit. Like, losing weight was a matter of life and death. It's about growing up and seeing their kids get married one day, as opposed to not making it that long. And one of the trainers there on the show, one of my favorites, was named Bob. And I loved watching him on that show. At various times in the show, uh, the people he trained hated him. <laughs> Often in the final workout before the weigh-in, um, they were so frustrated with Bob because Bob would push them farther than they wanted to go or thought they should be pushed. But for those who followed their leaders, when they would stand on that scale, and there was the burr, 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 like if you remember this, and the numbers are like flashing all up and down. What is it going to be? It's, all the drama is so manufactured. But anyway, it's, it's, it's flashing there, and all of a sudden it would be this huge number, and the crowd would go nuts. Or at home, we're like, yeah. And then she'd put up her hands, this and then she'd point and there'd be this silent nod thank you pointing at Bob (laughs) admittedly it's strange for Bob to be a pastor hero who wasn't a pastor but I see in him a picture of what the author of Hebrews wants for us he wants leaders to work with the people for their eternal joy a good leader knows there will be desires for junk food, lust, gossip, cynicism, anxiety, and the like. And he knows there will be temptations toward apathy. But good leaders also know that the true church has at a deeper level this desires for eternal joy and satisfaction of knowing Jesus. And he leads his people accordingly. My second hero, you should guess, his name is Jesus. He's the most joyful pastor there has ever been. 
The author of Hebrews felt this way about Jesus too. Look how he describes Jesus in chapter 12. If you want to flip there, you can. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Final half page. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, all these saints who have come before the author writes, since we're surrounded by them, let us also with them, he's saying, lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So to fix your eyes on him, some translations. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, comma, what does it say? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was not for the duty that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. It was not merely for the importance of salvation that Jesus endured the cross for you. It was not merely that it was a good thing for you that Jesus took all of your sins upon himself. That is, if you trust him. What does the author of Hebrews say? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the most happy pastor and joyful church leader you could ever know. In the first chapter of Hebrews, it's a theme that shows up over and over again in Hebrews. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, the author says of Jesus that Jesus has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions. And if you don't know Jesus as a happy pastor, you can. I want you to. He wants to watch over you for your soul and make you happy in God in this life and the life to come. This week we talked about watchmen who care for our souls. Next week we'll talk about those in the church who care for our physical vulnerability. We call them deacons and deaconesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your watch care over us. We thank you that the church you lead the church you love, you also build. Would you build us faithfully, carefully, thoughtfully, with strength, with power, and with gentleness, and with joy. And may we be a church who knows this joy as well. In Christ's name we pray.